Well, great to see all of you. It's been a couple weeks since we've had Sunday school. Um, so glad to see all of you here this morning uh, that you remembered. Um, we will first start with prayer, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that we get to come before you and open it. We pray that you would guide the meditations of our hearts and our minds this morning. Please lead us, Lord, uh, by your spirit, that we would understand you, uh, that we would most importantly come to see uh, the gospel more clearly, that we would um, be filled with your joy of knowing the forgiveness and the certainty of our salvation that you have sealed in a covenant. God, please lead us, especially as we think about what it means to be a church, to be a covenant community. Uh, I pray that you would build us up, that we would become more like that temple uh, in the heavenly city, that we would grow towards that, Lord. Please lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so let's do a little review uh, because it's been a couple months, sorry, a couple weeks since we've met. Um, and over the last few months, we've been talking about the nature of the church. We're talking about uh, church and community. So the goal is we want to talk about what community means. What does it mean to be uh, a church community, a covenant community? What does that look like in daily life? How does that impact how we view each other, how we talk, how we live, how we uh, do communal life together? Um, especially as we think about, okay, how can we grow? You know, what areas are we deficient in as a church? Um, how can we move towards uh, uh, the goal, which is the upward movement towards Christ? Um, so we've been talking a lot about the church and just the, the foundational nature of the church. Um, so I want to pitch the question to you guys as we review and think back in the last couple months. Um, what is the church? What, what is the church? When I say church, what do I mean? And I mean the church broadly as a whole. You're thinking about when Scripture talks about the church. What does the Scripture, what do Scriptures mean? Any thoughts? Matthew? All of God's Yeah, all of God's people, specifically all the elect, right, throughout time and space. So the, all the elect of God everywhere and every when, um, from all the places, all the times, uh, united right, by the Spirit of God to the Son of God. So the capital C Church is all the elect of God from every time and every place. Um, and we are united. But the church is united. It is not simply um, a register full of names. The church is united together by the Spirit of God. Um, and we are united to the Son of God. Uh, and we are the elect chosen by God the Father. Uh, the church is a Trinitarian thing. Um, who made the church? Who made the church? God, thank you. God made the church. Um, do you guys remember any of the implications of the fact that God made the church? What implications can we draw from the fact that God made it, not man? What do you think? That's right. Yeah, it's governed by God under the new covenant. So God makes the church. He creates it, and he creates the, you know, the constitution. He's the one who wrote the constitution of the church, which is the new covenant. What else? Any other implications? Think about, think about all the man-made communities that have ever existed. 
Yeah. Yeah, he preserves it. He protects it. He, it endures because the, the sustainer is God. Right? All man-made communities eventually end. We, we talk a lot about the Roman Empire and history and history books, but it doesn't exist anymore. Even though it was the pinnacle of human power and, and the biggest empire of the world, yet it doesn't exist anymore. Right? That community, that covenant community ended, but the church didn't. The church has been around a long, long time. Um, and God protects and endures it because the new covenant, which creates the church, the constitution, if the constitution goes away, the church goes away. Right? If the covenant goes away, there is no more church. So the fact that the new covenant is unbreakable and eternal, as Jeremiah 31 says, that means that the church is unbreakable and eternal. Yeah, any other implications of the fact that God made the church not man? In other words, why are you here? God names the members. Yeah. God names the members. God calls us into his church. Right? We're not here because we made a decision. We're here because God made a decision. Um, God makes the church, which means that you are here because God called you, because God puts you here. Um, it's not a, a decision that you made. It's not like uh, deciding to join the local golf club or join a, a book club or get a library card. It is not a decision you make. It's a decision God makes to bring you into his church. Um, the church broadly, uh, also called the universal church or the invisible church, all the elect from every time, from every place, made by God, established by God, governed by the, the new covenant, um, local churches, like Reformation, like us, um, we are visible manifestations of that broad universal church. So there's, there aren't two churches, right? There's not this ephemeral, like invisible church that you, that's over there, and here's the, here's the historical church, and it's different, and they're two different things. No, there's one church of God. There's the universal church, and then the visible church is the historical manifestation of that broad uh, universal church. So we are, we are a visible representation of the church, right? Capital C, the church. Um, as we talked about, <coughs> sorry, as we talked about, the visible historical churches are not perfect. Um, we are not yet complete. We're not perfect, which means two things. It means, first of all, that there are some in the visible historical church who are not, who are not true believers. Right? There are people who are in the visible historical church who are not regenerate. Um, they, they may yet be regenerate later, but they are not currently, at this moment in time, regenerate. Um, so it's not a perfect church. There are wolves among the sheep as well. There are tares among the wheat. There are false Christians. There are false teachers. There are wolves. Um, those all exist in the visible church. However, we're also not perfect because we are not yet glorified and sanctified and made to be like Jesus in all of his glory and perfection. Um, the local church, the historical church, is still, there's still a goal. Right? We're not done it's not enough to just be converted. We're moving towards something. We have a goal that we are striving towards. And the mission of the church, the goal of the church, is to, is to shape believers towards that goal. And what's the goal? What are we all striving towards? 
Matthew? Heavenly glory, glory, yes. Uh, Specifically, we want to be molded into what? The image of Christ. That's the goal. Uh, a little, little bit less like me, a little bit more like Jesus. We're moving towards being like Jesus. That's the goal. That's the goal of the church is to bring people into uh, God's covenant and then to do the work of molding and shaping. God does this work through the church, but the mission is to shape and mold people to be more like Jesus. Um, so when Jesus says uh, to his apostles in Matthew 28, go and make disciples, what he's saying is go and not just evangelize. right? It's not just share the gospel with people. It's far more than that. Uh, to because to share the gospel and to evangelize is step one. That's step one of the process of making disciples. Um, but a disciple, as Jesus says, is fully trained when he is like his master. That's the goal, is to be like our master. And so the mission of the church is to mold and shape people to be more like Jesus. Um, and so what tools has God given the church to accomplish this mission of molding and shaping people to be in the image of Christ? What tools has God given the church? His word? Absolutely. Pastors to elders, deacons. Yeah. So the word and the ministers of the word. Sacraments. Yeah. So when Jesus says in in Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples. What then does he say? Baptize them and teach them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. In other words, the primary tools, Jesus says, are the sacraments and the word. Those are the primary tools that God has given the church to the church in order to mold and shape people to be more like Jesus. Uh, So these are the primary tools. They're not the only tools. Certainly God uses many other means as well, but these are the primary tools that God has given the church. Um, And then when scripture talks about the church and talks about how um, he is working in it and molding it and shaping it, uh, what images does scripture use to talk about the church? What images and metaphors does scripture have uh, to describe the church? Yeah, body, bride, building. There's a couple others that we talked about. Family. The church is a family. There's one more that we talked about. Yeah, kingdom. That's right. So we talked about the church as a body, a building, a bride, a family, and a kingdom. Um, Scripture uses all these metaphors to describe the church. Scripture also talks about the church as a vine. Um, that we are rooted in Christ, right? We're attached to the, uh, Paul says that we're grafted in. Gentiles are grafted into the, the olive tree or the plants or the vine. Um, and there might be others that I missed, but those are, those are the ones that we talked about. 
So the church is the body of Christ. The church is a, is a building, a temple that God is building up and adorning. Um, the church is a bride that is being prepared for her wedding day uh, when she will be united to her, her Lord and Savior forever. The church is a family, the family of the household of God. The church is a kingdom ruled by God, that he is our king. Um, all these metaphors describe the church uh, and, and teach us something about the church. So we've talked a lot about these things. Um, but as we start to look towards, okay, what's next? How do we get from here where we're talking about the church and, and what it is and all these metaphors, how do we get from here to what does it mean to be a covenant community, to be a, a people of God here in Olympia today um, as a church body, building, bride, family, kingdom? How does all that apply to us? How do we get there? Well, we need to start talking about the foundations that are, well, we've been talking about foundations, but we need to start thinking of ourselves more and more in terms of covenants, um, in terms of the covenantal community. So we'll, we'll start to push there more as we go along, but we're, we battle um, a, and a, specifically, it's, I think it's an American sort of thing, American individualism kind of sees people as a bunch of marbles, right? We're all just kind of, we're individuals and we're all separate and we're just all thrown into a big pot together, um, but we're all still individuals, right? It's, it's all about your personal relationship with Jesus and there is not much concept of the fact that you are in a covenant, in a covenant community, and that means something and that affects you, and that changes you. Um, so what we want to do is start to talk about the fact that we're a covenant community. What does that mean that we're a covenant community? Um, I think we all understand, um, we all understand innately what it means to be a part of a covenant community uh, because we're all part of various covenant communities just by existing. Right, just by living in this world, you are a part of covenant communities. There's, there's big ones, there's small ones, but we're all parts of various covenant communities. Um, for instance, a nation is a covenant community. It's bound together, right? It's, it's binding, it's bound together by citizenship and geography and language and culture, love for the nation, uh, etc. But a nation is a covenant community bound together, and that produces, or that, or that means that there are certain requirements for those who are in the covenant community, right? Don't go and sell state secrets to China. That's called treason, which means you have violated the covenant community, right? You violated the terms of the covenant. Um, a family is a covenant community, right? Bound together by the marriage covenant, by family culture, family love, love for the family, etc. Um, a credit union is a covenant community, uh, bound together by paperwork and mutual benefit. You know, it's, that's a smaller one, but we're all parts of these various covenant communities in everyday life. Um, whenever you sign your name, you're pledging something. You're, you're signing a declaration, a covenant of sorts. Um, whenever we pledge and give our word towards something, whenever there's some sort of binding agreement that has requirements for both parties and benefits if you're in it. Um, and some covenant communities hold more weight than others. Right. Some are more binding, some have more requirements, some have more weightiness than others. Right. It is, it, it, you don't, we don't have to do a lot of work to realize that to be a part of a nation is, is weightier than being a part of a, a credit union. Right. It's, it's weightier. There's more weight to being part of a nation. 
some are more deeply rooted, some are more binding, some have uh, more requirements. Now, um, we also live in an age where um, advertisers know this. They know that covenant communities are a part of everyday life, and so they tried to tap into that in order to utilize all the strengths of a covenant community to get you to buy stuff. Um, they realize, advertisers know that if they can market their brand as a, as a covenant community of sorts, that they will create loyalty and increase profits for themselves. Uh, for instance, uh, Coke versus Pepsi. Who here likes Coke? Who likes Pepsi? And don't, don't fight. I'm pretty sure you've met people who are staunchly, like, I will never drink Coke, it's only Pepsi, and, I, and there's people who are like, Pepsi is the worst thing, it's only Coke, and I'll drink nothing else but Coke. Um, you've met people who are fiercely loyal to Coke or Pepsi. Um, and the conflict between the two brands, right, the fact that they're in conflict of sorts, um, creates a sense of loyalty and belonging Right now, you, are, you have solidarity, you have loyalty with other Coke drinkers or other Pepsi drinkers. If you go out to dinner with someone and they order Pepsi and you're like, me too, I like Pepsi, I hate Coke. You now have, you know, you have a link, you have a bond. Um, but the funny thing is that Coke and Pepsi are owned by the same company. Right? They're the same company, but they intentionally, they let this happen. They want there to be conflict between Coke and Pepsi because it drives profits and it drives loyalty. If you feel a sense of community and belonging and loyalty to something, to a brand, the companies know this, that you will stay with that brand even if there are other options. Now, there's, now you're bound, right? And so they tried to, to create a, a covenant community around the brand, around the product, um, in order to drive loyalty. Um, and we're bombarded by this all the time. We're bombarded by... by advertisements and other things that try to create a sense of loyalty, that try to create a, a covenant community around certain things. And as you blow up all life and you look at all life and how you live, there are, there are not just tens or, or hundreds, there's thousands of various covenant communities that are all clamoring for your loyalty, uh, for your uh, energy, for your time, for your money, um, and I think most importantly for your identity. There are thousands of covenant communities all trying to get you to identify, to put your identity in that community because once you have that tie, that link, that bond to that community, that creates a sense of loyalty, um, belonging, identity, fellowship, right? These, all these things come along with being a part of a covenant community. And so political leaders, they understand this innately. So their, their goal, their push, is to get you to identify with their movement, um, to feel a sense of a binding covenantal loyalty to them and their platform. Because they know that that means that you'll vote for them and you won't vote for someone else because now you identify with them, um, that you are now part of this covenant community of sorts. So all of this, right, all of this, all this deluge of demands upon us, add in, throw into the blender the fact that we are sinful and that we are idolatrous. And idolatry is covenantal. Idolatry is covenantal. Um, not only do you and I feel pulled in a thousand directions by the various demands, by external uh, 
uh, influences, whether it's advertisements or whether it's the demands of, of, uh, of, of political leaders or any other sense of demands, um, we also are pulled in a thousand directions inside. Right? We're, we're pulled in a thousand directions externally and we're pulled in a thousand directions internally because of our idolatry, because our hearts, as Calvin said, are idol factories. We produce idols like, like the dime a dozen. We're always idolatrous after something. And this means that idolatry, because it's covenantal, it means that we are constantly, constantly putting our identity in these various idols and various covenant communities. And we're, we're shattering our identity and splitting it up and putting it in all these different places. And so no wonder do we live in an age where the term identity politics means which covenant community do you identify with? Where do you put your identity? And because there is no objective truth, it's all subjective, it's what you feel. If you feel like you're a man, you can identify as a man. And now you're part of that covenant community. You, we split up our identity and we, we morph our own identity and we distribute it wherever we, wherever we please. It's all idolatry. Um, so the question is not whether or not I will be a part of a covenant community. It's not a question of, well, will I identify with certain, some covenant community or not? It's which covenant community will you identify with? It's not whether or not you'll be part of these covenant communities. It's which ones. It's not whether, it's which. Which communities will shape my identity? Which communities will I give my loyalty to? Which communities will I, will I, will I put my time and energy and money and desires and, I, and all of the things that come along with a covenant community? Where will I put my identity? Where will I put my loyalty? Um, and so it's not whether, it's which. So that's some of the, the backdrop. Right? That's some of the backdrop for talking about covenant communities. This is, this is stuff that we deal with every single day in our lives. We just don't call it covenant communities, but it's stuff that we understand implicitly. We all know that you have to put your loyalty somewhere. Now, Scripture talks about covenant communities in very binary terms. It means, Scripture says there's actually only two options. You know, we, we feel pulled in a thousand directions in the world. We feel pulled in a thousand directions in our hearts. But really, Scripture says, clear all of that debris away. If you were to, to, to boil everything in a big pot and it came down and it just solidified into one big glob, you would have two options. Either you are a part of the covenant with Adam, or you're a part of the covenant with Christ. If you, if you were to melt everything and melt it all down, get rid of all the debris, there's only two options. You are either in a covenant community with Adam, or you're in the covenant community in Christ. Those are the only two options, Adam or Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to start to revisit. This, this is some of the foundations that we built a year ago when we talked about covenants, when we did the covenant theology class. Um, so we'll revisit, we're going to revisit some of those foundations uh, because if this is true, right, if there's only two options, either Adam or Christ, then that actually makes sense of all the different poles that we feel. It makes sense of how shattered we feel, of how 
have, of why identity politics doesn't make sense, why it's wrong, why it's actually destructive for you to shape your own identity. Um, and so it'll help us also see what God has done for us and what the church is and how, and how, and, and how we see ourselves in relationship to the church. Um, so the foundations... The foundations is that there are only two covenants. You are either in Adam or you're in Christ. So let's talk about what that means. Because we need to remember, we need to revisit what we talked about in the covenant theology class. We need to revisit what a covenantal mediator is. Because Adam and Christ are both covenantal mediators. So what is a covenantal mediator? According to scripture, what does a covenant mediator do? And if it helps, you can also uh, compare and contrast to what a, a typical American would think if you said the word mediator. Charlie? A mediator is a third party that comes in between two other parties to settle conditions between them and obtain is that what scripture says, or is that what American culture would say? Uh, that's just me generally from the, the definition out there. Okay. Um, biblically, the mediator would be uh, somebody that stands between God and us to satisfy some sort of condition, either required of us or to be, or to give us something conditionally from the Lord. Okay. Right? Okay, so Charlie says that a mediator stands in the middle. It's a third party who stands in the middle of two warring sides and, and makes peace and, and, and satisfies conditions. Okay, there's truth there, yeah. But let's, let's narrow in just a little bit. Who specifically is, does a covenantal biblical mediator act on behalf of? Who is he acting for? I guess I should use good grammar. For whom is he acting? The people he represents. The people he represents. Yeah, for American culture, just the world generally, when you say mediator, who does the mediator act on behalf of? Both parties. Both parties, yeah. Because in the common sense of a mediator, a mediator is a neutral party. A mediator is a neutral third party who comes in and helps two opposing sides find compromise. He comes in and he helps, he's a third, neutral third party who comes in and helps two opposing parties find middle ground, find compromise. Um, that's not what a biblical mediator does, what a scriptural mediator does. Because a scriptural mediator comes in on behalf of someone. He's not neutral, he is, he is pro. He is staunchly pro certain people. And so when he acts, he is acting on behalf of those people. He is seeking their good. He's seeking their best interests, 100%. And so when a covenantal, covenantal mediator comes in, he, when he acts as a representative, when he acts, it's as if the people have acted. When he does something, it's as if the people have done that. When he receives something, it's as if the people receive it. If he fails, the people fail. If he succeeds, the people succeed. 
That is what a covenantal biblical mediator does. He acts on behalf of his people. And he represents them so that whatever he does, and whatever he receives, that's what they do and they receive in him. Charlie? Is it, is it... <laughs> Say that again. Um, In a sense, but not in the same way, right? Not in the same way because um, if Adam, f so Christ, Christ represents us to God, but then God, then Christ also mediates from God the blessings to us. So there's like a, a bilateral operation in the mediator. No, not not in the same way, no, because in a sense, yes, you're right. When, for instance, takes Moses, right? He goes up the mountain on behalf of the people, and then he comes down the mountain and he. You know, he mediates, in a sense, God's word to the people, right? He says, this is what God said, this is what you'll do. But, think of Adam. When Adam failed, all humanity failed. But God didn't fail. Adam wasn't representing God in the same way that he was representing humanity, right? When Adam fails, God doesn't receive what Adam receives, or what humanity receives, because Adam is not representing in the same way. Jesus, when he goes to the cross and dies, it's as if we have died, because we are in Christ. And Jesus receives the, 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 the reward from the Father that then we receive, because he was standing in, in our place. Um, so there's a difference between someone who's, who's representing and acting on, acting you know, on behalf of God in the sense of delivering God's word and, and communicating, here's what God says, and, um, and things like that. <coughs> Sorry. Um, but not in the same way as Adam and Christ represent us. So this is Romans 12. I, I think this will clear it up. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though there were those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So you see, there's, there's two options. There's one man, Adam, and there's the one man, Jesus. The one man, Adam, 
did one act of, of, of uh, did one transgression. The one man, Jesus, did one act of righteousness. The one man's Adam's act of uh, trespassing, the one man's, Adam's failure led to death. Jesus' success led to life. For whom? All men. All he's representing. Through one man, death comes to all men because that one man was representing all men. So whatever happens to Adam happens to us. Whatever Adam did affects us because he was our covenantal representative. He was our, our covenantal mediator. Conversely, that's one option. The other option is Jesus. Through the one man Jesus, life came. A free gift of justification of life. So that through the one act of righteousness, this leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This means that there's two options. You're either in Adam and you're dead. Or you're in Christ and you're alive and, it is, and you are righteous. Those are the only two options. That's what Paul is saying. There's two covenants, two covenantal mediators. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Yeah. Would it be more correct then to say that the role that Moses had when he brought God's word to the people was a different role than the mediator? That was a different job. Part of his designation, wouldn't it be termed in his mediator role? Yeah, and because Moses was doing something different than Jesus and Adam. Yeah, Moses was a prophet, and he was. And, and, and this is, um, um, we're talking about, we're, we're making distinctions where the Bible has, you know, the Bible is multi, there's, there's so much that you could talk about with what Jesus does and his role, or his, his offices. He's a mediator, he's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king, he's a redeemer. Like there's so much that Jesus does that we're, we're kind of in a sense, yeah, honing in on one specific thing and, and we're not, we're not yet integrating it with everything. So, uh. It, maybe it's not as clear as it could be, and I'm sorry for that. But it makes it elevates that role much more when you designate that clearly, that definitively in those two aspects. It, it makes it a lot less broad and a little more specific, I guess. I don't know. It just defines it very finely when you when you say, and you know, that's probably a good thing because. We should understand this beauty of all that Christ does for us in a way that really does elevate it to a richer thing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, well think about... Um the common conception is that, like, well, what if, what if you lived a perfect life, right? What if, from the moment you were conceived to the time you died, you were perfect and you didn't sin even once? Where would you still go when you die? Would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Go to hell. Why? 
Yeah. Yeah, because Adam sinned, you die. So that's, that's the overarching mediatorialship, covenantal framework that Scripture operates off of. You are born in sin. You are born dead. Steve? I think the story of David and Goliath Yeah. But it's just, it's, it's a as a, a covenantal representative. Yeah. Yeah. David was a type of Christ. And Adam was a type of Christ. That's what Paul says, right? Paul says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Now, a type is, is someone patterned after something else. That there's, there's an original, and types are patterns. They're, they're mirror images, they're copies that point towards that ultimate original thing. So Adam was a type. He wasn't the covenant mediator. He was a covenant mediator who points to the covenant mediator, which is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the types in Scripture. Every kind of, t of mediator you see in Scripture, David, Moses, Adam, uh, Abraham, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if Abraham, but anyone who acts as a mediator, who, who, who works in that sort of way, when they live this kind of way, when they show what mediatorship is, they're pointing towards what Christ will do, right? towards the ultimate, which is Jesus. Uh, so this means that Adam was pointing somewhere. He was not Jesus. He was pointing to Jesus, both in his, even in his failure, he was pointing to Jesus to what Jesus would do to rescue us, right? If we are dead when we're born, if there is no hope because someone else made a mistake and failed, that could lead you to hopelessness, right? Well, what's the point, right? I'm, I'm, I'm doomed from the start. I can't do anything to get out of this hole that I'm in, right? That's hopelessness. So what does Jesus or what does God promise immediately after the fall? What does God say? What is the seed of the woman going to do? Yeah, crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel. What, would, what should Adam have done? The serpent comes in, starts lying. What should Adam have done? Killed it. Right away. As soon as he started uttering lies, he should have stomped on that bad boy. Right, that's what Adam should have done. So when Adam fails and everything's ruined, the first thing, not the first thing, but God then immediately says, there will be someone who will do what you failed to do. There will be someone who will accomplish what you failed to accomplish. And so if death came through Adam, that means that life is coming through the seed of the woman. It's not hopeless. There is actually the hope that someone is going to do what Adam should have done. It, I'm not going to save myself. I can't dig myself out of this hole. I need rescue. God's promise is, I am sending a rescuer who will do what the first Adam failed, who will save you from your sin.
That is what our hope is in. That either you're in Adam and you're dead, or you're in Christ and you're alive. That's our hope. Uh, so that's that's all the time we have for today. There's a few more things to maybe talk about with mediator, mediatorialship um, that we will that we can address next week, um, potentially. But this is the some of the foundational stuff, Brett. Uh, no, but they're subsidiary loyalties. They're subordinate. They're underneath. There's, there's two ultimate identities that you have. Your identity is either I'm in Adam and I'm dead, or my identity is I'm in Christ and I'm alive. Everything else, you know, nation, credit union, marriage, are subservient to that ultimate identity, uh, which is, you know, we'll talk about why then that makes um, idolatry, Identity politics, all these things, it makes them so wrong and, and actually false is because you can't split up your identity and put it in a thousand different things. You either have one identity in Adam or you have one in Christ. That's it. And if you start to put something else over Christ, that's idolatry. Okay, so um, any other questions or comments or tomatoes you want to throw? No? Okay. Um, real quick, I want to say I'm sorry, David, for making fun of you when you're coming in. That was not nice. I'm sorry for, for doing that. Um, please forgive me. And please forgive me, everybody, for, for making fun of David. That was not kind. Um, well, if there's any other questions or comments, um, let's pray and, and ask God to prepare us to worship. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your grace and for your mercy and for the, uh, giving us your son, Jesus. Lord, if we uh, were responsible, if we had to save ourselves, we would be doomed. Not only because we have failed a billion times, but because we are dead in our sins. We were born dead. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for making us alive through the free gift of Jesus' righteousness through his work. Thank you, Lord, that we get to come before you and worship you. And that we get to honor you and praise you and delight in your word and your sacraments to be shaped and molded. Lord, shape us as we worship you to be more like our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.